And when we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, this teacher, this preacher, which is what the word Ecclesiastes mean, it just means teacher, preacher. Uh, well, he's a doctor. And he's going to give us a diagnosis for our lives. And it won't be good news. It won't be good news. He wants us to know what ails us, what ails you, so that you might know what to do about it. Now, he starts with the bad news, but he doesn't want to just give us the bad news. Not at all. And look, just like a a doctor or when we know that there is an ache within us, we could close our eyes to it, couldn't we? We could try and ignore it. Absolutely we can. And with the spiritual aches in our lives, we can close our eyes and close our ears to them, and just pretend like they are not there. And while we can ignore the diagnosis, we can't ignore the consequences. They will catch up with us, won't they? And I beg you today, please, please, as sort of off-putting as it might be, don't cover your ears, don't close your eyes to it. Listen and look that you might live. Hear the bad news, and yeah, there is some bad news, that you might then find joy, because that is what the teacher, that is what Ecclesiastes wants you to have. Wants you to have joy in this world and in your work. He wants a life for you that means something. And he's worried that you will miss it. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is about understanding our lives and our work rightly, truthfully, in this cursed world. That our work is limited and we are limited. But God's work is not. God's work is what will come to pass and which will last. So find yourself, find yourself in his work. Locate your work with all of its frailty and limitations in his lasting work. And then you can actually have joy in the midst of your work, even with all your frailties and limitations. And who, who if asked, do you want hope in your life? Do you want joy in your life? Who's going to say, no, no, I don't? Probably there is someone out there. But actually, none of us would say that, would we? So let's hear this diagnosis then. Let's hear this bad news that we might also receive the good news that the teacher has to offer us today. And as I said, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 starts with probably the best-known verses of the whole book because, yes, they were turned into a song, Songs are good at doing that, eh? Catchy tune, gets in your head, and those words are there. But the lyrics of this song were written by Pete Seeger. That might be stretching it a little bit. Um, He wrote them, he actually wrote seven words. All the rest is the first eight verses that we just heard this morning. Uh, As a a funny aside, he apparently only takes 5% of the profits Uh, from the song, uh, he gives uh, most of it to Israel because he recognized that he he only actually wrote 5% of the song. It's good honesty on his part. I'm suspicious he hasn't done too poorly off it. Anyway, but he he wrote the song, but he didn't make it famous. No, it was a group called The Birds, with a Y, who took the lyrics and turned them into the song titled Turn 
turn, turn, and it starts, you probably know it, to everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, turn, turn. Turn is one of the words he added. It is repeated a lot, isn't it? But it's got a really catchy tune. You've got to be careful about songs with catchy tunes, though. They might have a wonderful tune, but are they right? I was humming the tune this week in the car. Robin was in the car with me, and <laughs> she told me, don't stop being a pastor. <laughs> like, ah, cutting but true, cutting but true. As I said, though, what's sort of incredible about this song, and let's just appreciate this for a moment, 1965, this song is number one in the US and New Zealand. Eight verses from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, only seven additional words to it, and people are singing it everywhere, and we're still singing it today, aren't we? It's just sort of remarkable that a song with so much majority of the Bible in it was number one. But the song was originally an appeal for peace, that it was not too late for peace, as the last line says. And it was a good appeal then. And tell you what, it's a good appeal today, isn't it? Good appeal for peace, especially as we consider the wars that are going on in our world. But this is where I ruined the song for you, sorry, uh, because it's not actually, that's not actually the point, the teacher that Ecclesiastes was making in this poem. Again, got to watch out for a catchy tune. No, the teacher's point is that we live in time, whoever we are, you live in time, I live in time, the teacher lives in time. Yes, even if we are the king of Israel, the most powerful person in the land, time comes and time goes. And time is filled with different seasons, some positive, some negative, some that add to our lives and some that take from our lives. And we are in these seasons, but they also happen to us. We have power, but we are not completely in control. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes drives this home over seven verses, verses two to eight, which are made up of 14 pairs, 14 examples of this. So verse two starts by telling us that there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot Birth and death start the list because, well, in one sense, they sum up our lives. They are the start and the end of it. And they are things that happen to us. We are are not in control of them. Likewise, in our lives, there is a time to plant and a time to uproot. I was thinking about this one, particularly this week, as um, the gardens went in out here on Tuesday. Uh, They look good, don't they? Don't they? I think they look really good. Uh, But think of these gardens in time. There were gardens before them. And, you know, quite likely said, oh, these gardens are too much work. Let's tear them out and put lawn in there. It's much easier to maintain. And you know what? In time, someone will probably say something similar and come along and go, why did these people put these gardens in? So much work. And they'll tear them out and put lawn in or something, something else, won't they? 
And I know that sounds very disheartening, but the teacher wants us to consider our lives this way. What is the fruit of our labors? And likewise, in life, there are times when we we tear and times when we mend, times when we are silent and times when we speak up, times when we love and times when we hate, times for war, unfortunately, and times for peace, hopefully. And look, the poem is not being prescriptive here. It's not telling you, you have to do these things. No, but it is telling us that in life, you will experience all these things. Time is going to happen to you. You will experience this. The end of war is peace. The end of peace is war. The end of silence is speech, and the end of speech is silence. Fourteen times we hear the pluses and the minuses of life, and when we do the maths on them, we don't get a lot. In one sense, nothing really changes. And this is where the song gets it wrong. It leaves off verse 9. And look, I'll cut it some slack here because verse 9 is not part of the poem, but it is the punchline. It is. It is the question that the poem raises and that the teacher wants us to consider in our lives. What do workers gain from their toil? What do you gain from your toil? If life is like this, seasonal, transitory, changing, what is the benefit of your work and your struggle in it? What comes from it if none of it lasts? If it's just going to change anyway, what is the point of it all? The whole poem is a setup for this question, and it is a really important question. A question we need to consider, I think a question we're at times quite happy to try and avoid. (laughs) But it is a question we're going to answer one way or the other. One way or the other. And the teacher wants us to see and feel the frustration of our toil, our struggle in this world. He wants us to be real about it. That for all of our effort, all of our toil in this world doesn't end to a lot. doesn't. You might work and work and work all your life, and who might get it? You know, I, know, I heard of a builder who'd spent his life building houses. Good job, you know, we need houses, don't we? And he could drive around and see houses that he'd built being torn down. Already. Already, even within his own lifespan. Sure, we might achieve stuff, but all too quickly it is wiped away and changed. And it amounts to what? Not a whole lot. As the teacher says in verse 10 to answer his own question, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This burden that he speaks of here is the burden of frustration in this world, which comes from living in a cursed world where our efforts are so easily wiped away, 
all too quickly. And this is put upon us by God. Oh, we chose it. We chose it when Adam and Eve chose a life apart from God in the Garden of Eden, as I was talking a little bit with the kids this morning. But God has put this frustration upon us for a reason. It has a purpose. He is doing something in it. If you feel it, you're meant to feel it. He is at work in this world, and he is at work in this frustration. And this is what makes everything beautiful, or as another translation puts it, everything appropriate in its time. We can't see the purpose of it all, but we can be confident that it is serving a purpose. Not our purpose, not your purpose, not my purpose, but it is serving God's purpose. Just before we, we sung the song, I trust, I trust, I trust you know it all for me. We sung that. Do we understand what that means, though? One of the best examples of this in the Bible, I think, that we can come across, and I've used this one before, is the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. He is sold into slavery by his brothers, a terrible event. doesn't get too much worse than that, I think, in our lives. But God is using this. God has a purpose in this. God used this event, this brotherly betrayal to position Joseph to save his betraying brothers and their families and through them to save a lot of people, indeed to save the line that would lead to Jesus and lead to salvation. Now that is beautiful. I doubt it felt too beautiful for Joseph right at the time, but that is beautiful. And indeed, in our own lives at the time, we can't see this beauty. We can't see this appropriateness. No, we have eternity in our hearts. We long for our work to last and matter, but we can't see what God is doing. Joseph never knew, and hear this, he never knew that God positioning him there would hundreds of years later lead to Jesus the saviour of the world. He never ever knew that. He got the fact that he saved his brothers and saved their families, but he never ever knew what it would lead to. Yes, Joseph foreshadowed Jesus. This brother who was betrayed foreshadowed Christ who was also betrayed indeed to save his brothers and us for eternity. Joseph never knew that. Uh, we can look back and see what God was doing and where it was leading, can't we? And that should be an encouragement to us all in our own lives. In those times of frustration, those times of questioning, God, what are you doing? Often, we don't know. But we can indeed trust him. And in that trust, we can then find joy in the midst of this world. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. 
I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. It is different to that poem. God does it so that people will fear him. Let me start with the final verse here, verse 14, then look at the others. God's work, unlike our work, will last forever. Nothing will frustrate his work. Nothing. World War II did not frustrate his work. What is happening in Ukraine and between Russia will not frustrate his work. And what is happening around you will not frustrate his work. Nothing will detract from it. Nothing will alter it. Absolutely nothing. And this realization of his work, that his work lasts, should cause us to fear him because we know how temporary our work is compared to his. The CSB translation puts it that it should cause us to be in awe of him. Really, either way, the point is it should humble us before God. A humility that recognizes that he is in control, he is at work, even though our work and toil is often frustrated. His is not. His plan will come to pass. And we can rest in this fact. In fact, this fact changes how we work It changes how we think about our work. If we do good, if we are doing the right thing and yet it all falls over, is God's plan frustrated? No. No, it's not, and we need to remember it then. If we are doing good, if we are doing the right thing, what God has caused us to, and we have no idea what will come from it, can we enjoy that? Can we have joy in that moment? Yes, we can. And in fact, that is the joy we are meant to have. That is the joy God wants us to have, even though we go, I don't know what's going to come from this. Gosh, I would love to see fruit from my work, and I'm sure you would too. And I pray that sometimes you do, and that you are encouraged by that. But do not stop there. Do not let that steal your joy, brother or sister. You are called to be faithful where God has you. Faithful if you see no fruit at all. Faithful if you carry on doing good, doing the right thing, and yet it still falls apart over here. God sees and his plan is afoot. He is working still. You know, I've got young kids at the moment, and they often ask me, uh, at the moment it's Audrey particularly, Dad, why? And one why leads to another why, which leads to another why. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. This is the season of life I am in, the why season. And Audrey's very good at asking this. Usually, or often, it comes from Robin and I are talking about something You've got to be a little careful about what you talk about around your kids, don't you? Uh, but they chirp in, why? And, and they're sincere, like, mm, I want to know, why? And so Robin and I could be talking about, you know, housing or any number of things going on in our land, and Audrey, the three-and-a-half-year-old, is like, Dad, why? How do you answer that? 
well, interest rates, supply and demand, you can only build so fast, consumerism, people, immigration, all that sort of thing. I don't do that, I'll be honest. I go for shorter answers. Uh, she still asks why. <laughs> and, you know, I do try and give them an answer that will, I hope, satisfy them. But more than that, I try and give them an answer that will help them. Actually, I think that's more important than them being satisfied, is them being helped. My mum had this great line, and it stuck with me. She was like, oh, with kids, you can give them the headlines. They don't necessarily need to know all of the details. I'm not even sure I know all the details, truth be told. <laughs> when it comes about these things with so many forces at work here. And I think this is actually an example of us, you and I. We can understandably and rightly have many why questions for God. And actually, he has no obligation to tell us. He doesn't. Now, he might but I can basically guarantee, not to dissuade you, but basically guarantee he won't tell you everything. Basically guarantee it. Joseph, that example I gave before in his own life, he never knew all the why. Never did. In fact, he never really knew the key reason why. He never knew Jesus. He didn't, he didn't know that he foreshadowed Jesus. I mean, we do. And I think likewise in our lives as we understandably, God, why? Like We'd really like to know why. It's a sincere question. God might tell us. He might not. But either way, we can trust him. And that why question should not steal our joy in life. At times it does, doesn't it? We are wrestling with so much with the why question here that we start to let go of God's sovereignty and God's plan, that something has failed. No, instead we are called to be in a, a humble place, a place of trust, a place of faith in the God who is at work, who has been at work bringing his plan to fruition and is at work bringing his plan to fruition. And in, in that place, we will do the good you will do the good that you are called to do. Whatever that is, wherever you are, to use Jesus' words, that you will be salt and light there. You will be salt and light now. And that in our lives, we can have a thankfulness and indeed a joy of knowing that God is at work in us and through us. How many of you heard the wind the other night? It's pretty hard to ignore, wasn't it? And both Robin and I said to each other at different stages, gosh, I'm quite thankful for our house <laughs> right about now. I think I should have been thankful beforehand, but gosh, that wind just drove it in. And the thankfulness leads to a joy because I recognize that as much as we have worked for our house, that actually it is God's provision in the end, isn't it? It really is. It leads to a joy in him. People have had our house before us. People will probably have our house after us. But right here, right now, we have a joy in the midst of it. We really do. And I think this joy, this trust in God is a secure place to be. 
Oh, there are frustrations in this world. I have no doubt there's frustrations in your life. There are in mine. Uh, But our trust in God is meant to be a secure place to be. Let me wrap this up this morning. Just two points, really. Augustine, sometimes known as St. Augustine, he lived about 1,600 years ago, and he said this of God. He said this to God. You, God, made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. We are not meant to have rest, to have peace without God. I mean, lots of people try, but actually, we're not meant to. God didn't make us this way, and to seek it apart from Him, while it might be entertaining for a while, and it can be, uh, it will not last, and it will not satisfy. It won't. In the end, it will be frustrating, and this is God's design. This is God's design. He has a purpose in that frustration. No, your heart needs him. My heart needs him. We need a heavenly father and the only thing, get this, the only thing stopping us have him, having a heavenly father is our pride. The choice to do it our way. I live next to a guy and uh, get chatting on a few times. Um, At times he had needs in his life and he had come over and knock on the door and we always felt very honoured that he would, like he would humble himself to do that. And he said, oh, he he was realistic about it. He was like, Mike, I've had a lot of jobs and too often it's my way or the highway and it ends up being the highway. (laughs) And life had been hard for him. And I really appreciated his honesty, like he was aware of the problem. Um, Unfortunately, he wasn't doing a huge amount about it, which made it really, really hard. I think all of us, you know, as the poem goes, we have this, this desire to be the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Gosh, when I hear that at a funeral, sometimes a funeral I'm taking, I'm like, oh dear because that does not bode well. I worry that that person will have frustration ahead of them. Great, great frustration. God does not want us to have that frustration. He does not want us to have that restlessness and that lack of peace in his life. No, this is why he sent Jesus. He is so committed to it that he would send Jesus to die. And this was all, all his plan and no one else's plan all his, and he has done it. And he is working to bring it to fruition. He is working to bring it to fruition. And the only thing that stops anyone, anyone anywhere of having it is pride. Will they humble themselves? Will they humble themselves before God, recognizing who he is and who they are before him? And today, whether that's someone here or or watching online, I call to you. This is where you will find peace. You won't find it anywhere else. Many of us have tried and it does not work. 
and it will not work for you to look anywhere else. Your hearts were made for him, and they will be restless until they rest in him. I encourage you, come see me after the service this morning. I'd love to talk about it. I'd love to pray with you. Do not leave without this peace, because as I said, you won't find it anywhere else. Second point. Not that one. That one wasn't meant to be there. That was the third point that I dropped. Whoops. Second point. For those who are walking with Jesus, we are meant to have this joy in our lives. We are. That comes from trusting in God. Let's be honest, we don't always have it. We don't always have it. So I want to talk a little bit about how this works in yours and my life. And it starts by acknowledging that you probably, I'm pretty confident about this, probably know more of God's plan than Ecclesiastes, the teacher, did. You probably know more about what God has been working at from the beginning to the end. We're not at the end yet. I hope you do. I hope that we have it settled in our minds that as the kingdoms of this world have risen and disappeared, so God has been working through it all to bring his kingdom, his lasting kingdom, this kingdom that he created there in the Garden of Eden to bring it back to a reality and for this time for it to be filled with people. He is on this mission. He is invading this world. And we know that it started with Jesus who died to save us. And we know that one day, one day, this Prince of Peace will bring lasting justice and peace to this world. But we aren't there yet. No, we are in between these two realities. Jesus has come once. He's coming a second time. But we are in between those two realities. We know more so much more than the teacher of Ecclesiastes did, but we don't know everything. And this should lead us to humbly trust him, to humbly trust God that he is still at work and that we can have a joy in this world and in our lives as well. Paul said in Romans 8, one of our favorite promises, I say our, I mean like the church universal, not just here, Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. You know this one? If you don't, you should. It's such a great promise. It is a fantastic promise. We know, we know that in all things God works for our good if we love him. But what is the good talked about here? Is it the good of an easy life? Is it the good of wealth and prestige? Is it the good of achieving a whole, whole bunch in your life? No. No, it isn't any of those. In verse 29, which unfortunately does get dropped off often, but verse 29, which follows on, helps us understand this good that God is working for now in this world and particularly in your life and mine. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Brother, sister, 
God knows what you need physically. Like he knows that. And he's not ignorant of those need. He cares about them. But he has a greater care. A greater thing that he is working towards. And it is you, not just you, but you becoming like Jesus. He is working in your life in ways you possibly don't even recognize. He is working in your life in ways you possibly don't even want. (laughs) But he is working to make you more like Jesus. Now, most of the time, we can only look back in our lives and see this. Most of the time. But we must know here, now, today, in the present that he is working for this. This is the good he is seeking. Now, admittedly, it's not just to make you like Jesus, a few others as well. He does want a large family. But we must not miss this, because it is this knowledge that gives us joy in this world. We don't work alone. You don't work alone. Our work might fail or fade. Sometimes it does which is really disappointing and really hard, God's work will not. God is at work in us and you, brother or sister. And we need to remember this. Even read a passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians before, and I was nervous he was going to steal my finishing line today. Thank you, Evan, for not doing that. <laughs> right at the start of his letter to the church in Philippi, to the Christians in Philippi, Paul said in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. Brother and sister, hear this. I have no idea what your life holds. Like, really? Well, just about no idea. I do do not know what work will be like. I don't know where you're going to live for the rest of the time. I don't know what you're going to do for work. I don't know all those things. I don't actually need to know all those things. But I know this, that God who has began a good work in you Oh, he is so committed to carrying it on and to seeing it through. And it's not that those other things in your life do not matter. They do. They just don't actually matter as much to God as this thing. That he is conforming you to the image of his son. He is making you into who you are meant to be. A child that he has a place for in his family. And that, with all the struggles and the frustrations of this world, should give us great joy, joy today. Let's pray together. Uh, Almighty God, I have no idea of the frustrations that are here amongst us today. I'm sure they are many, and I'm sure they are varied, and I'm sure most of all that you know every single one. And I give thanks for your definite care for us. 
that with all of these frustrations, indeed these burdens in our lives, these things that weigh upon us, you do indeed care for us. I give thanks that for all of our effort, our arms are limited and short, but yours are not, and you hold us today. I pray that we will be a people who will do the good that you have called us to, a people who will be faithful where you have put us, a people who will indeed be salt and light and be able to rejoice in that, come what may, knowing that you hold the rest as you hold us. Thank you for your great love and faithfulness this day to us, your people. Thank you that you are at work in our lives for your glory, I pray. Amen.